Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello everyone and welcome to East Asian Studies channel of the New Books Network. Today we will be talking with Lorenzo Andolfato about his new book, 100 Days Literature, Chinese Utopian Fiction at the End of Empire, 1902-1910, published by Brill. The completion of this book has benefited from Lorenzo joining the collaborative research project called East Asian Uses of European Past, supported by the HERA Network and led by Professor Joachim Kurz. In 100 Days Literature, Lorenzo explores the landscape of early modern Chinese fiction through the lens of the utopian novel and casts new light on some of its most peculiar, yet often overshadowed, literary specimens. Hi, Lorenzo. Thank you very much for taking the time today to talk to us about your book, 100 Days Literature, Chinese Utopian Fiction at the End of Empire, 1902-1910. Hi, Victoria. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Sure, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. And the book is fantastic, let me say that, just, you know, to start um, at the very beginning. And um, <laughs> great. Yeah, I had a lot of fun reading it. And, um, you know, before I get into uh, more details about the book, I wanted to um, ask whether you could tell us a little bit more about yourself and the way you came to Asian studies, you know, about your interest in Chinese utopian novels, uh, specifically at the beginning of the century in China. Yeah, uh, I can do that. So as for the first question, where do I come from? Um, I'm an Italian scholar. I, I studied in Venice at the Kafosker University of Venice. Uh, as a, you know, I was trained as a sinologist, so I would say that I moved slowly from the classics to the more modern and contemporary stuff. I completed my PhD there between the University of Kafosker University of Venice and the Jean Moulin Lyontra University of Lyon in France in a joint degree program in 2015 Uh, and after a few months uh, looking for jobs I I landed in Hong Kong at the Department of Translation of the Chinese University of Hong Kong uh, for one year as a postdoc researcher and then I moved to Heidelberg where I am right now. Um, In this three-year period, three-year window, I managed to transform what was originally my PhD dissertation into this book we're talking about. Um, as for how I ended up, well, the, the basic question, so how, how I decided to, to study uh, East Asian languages and Chinese in particular is, well, the, 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 I have a funny anecdote about that. Oh, please, and please, sure. <laughs> it comes from when I was in high school and we were doing uh, modern and contemporary European history and we were not. I realized that we were not doing much about what was going on in in, in East Asia in particular. So I, I, I pretty much I knew nothing about what was going on over there. And I remember there was a one chapter in my history book that, if I remember correctly, um, it was using both Wei Giles and Pinin for transcribing Chinese names. Oh. And so wow. I found myself very confused about whether I was reading about the same persons, you know. Uh, uh, if if the, 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 this really 
similar names were actually referring to the same Mao Zedong, the same Deng Xiaoping and so on and so forth. Uh, and I remember that they asked my history professor and he was, he was a bit confused and he wasn't sure about his answer. Um, and so that made me realize that I had absolutely no uh, cognition, knowledge of, of the language spoken in China in this case, uh, the history of the country, the literature, the philosophy. And so I, I thought that was a good enough reason to, when it came to choosing a path in my university education to that's a very nice anecdote. <laughs> That's a very nice anecdote. And, uh, you know, it makes a lot of sense because uh, specifically in, you know, text, uh, history textbooks and, um, you know, some parts of Europe, Eastern Europe as well, um, you know, you have this dual system that confuses many, many people, myself included. So, um, yeah, I think that's, yeah, I think, <laughs> yeah. Um, right. So, um that's that's a very nice start, and uh, you know, just to get into to the matter of things, um, the book, uh, as I saw it, but you know, you can correct me if I'm wrong, is comprised of five chapters and the introduction and the conclusions as well, right? And it makes an intervention in the way utopian novels developed during the fast changing times, specifically uh, during transitional periods, as the one between 1902 and 1910. Um, and um, in the introduction, you mentioned the tumultuous history uh, of the end of the Qing dynasty and the different cultural investments when developing the utopian novel, as well as the way in which, you know, the, the novel functions and what the goals are and so on. So, um, you know, my, my question about this would be whether you could tell us more about the way you trace the genealogy of the utopian novel in your book. Um, yes, of course. So... I I must admit that my my relying on the on the label of utopia utopian writing and so on is uh, I wouldn't say forced but it's a very conscious decision. Well, I realized originally that was not my initial plan. I didn't I wasn't sure I was going to to end up working within the frame of utopian fiction. I ended up. Um, uh, using this perspective in order to make sense of what of what looked to me like a like a, a blind spot in what had been written before about that particular time, the major blind spot is the the one that posits the nineteen the May fourth as the main threshold for for defining where modern Chinese literature start. And I'm not the first one to say to say this. I mean, there's a lot of uh, David Wang in the Founders of Splendor wrote a lot about it, and Catherine Ye and Nathaniel Isaacson. And so I'm not the first one to make these, to make these claims. The thing is that even though much of of old timey scholarship about modern Chinese literature takes the 1919 as a sort of threshold period from which everything starts, everything new starts. If you actually look right a little a little bit let's say a few years before that there was so much going on that uh, there were so many movements and and tendencies and trends and experiments that most of the time they didn't go anywhere but they were trying to go somewhere and among these different kinds of writings there was the political novel that Catherine Ye wrote about science fantasy that David, David Wong wrote about there was science fiction coming out uh, the detective novel. Uh, so I thought 
that was my my starting point. I also realized that many of these labels were that came about around that time were also very artificial, and oftentimes uh, it it was very difficult to it is very difficult to pinpoint a particular genre to a particular work. So it it takes some. Uh, there's a, a certain flexibility uh, that uh, that makes for a very cool discursive space to explore for people like me interested in in utopian writing and science fiction. Sure, 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 absolutely. And uh, you know, the the end of the even before the end of the the Qing Dynasty, right? You had a lot of um, of cultural work happening, and as you said, a lot of movements that. Um, you know, remain for some reason or another understudied up to this day. And, you know, it's just, a, I don't know, it's, you know, like a child in a, you know, for Christmas in a candy store, you know, it's just so fascinating. But, <laughs> yeah, but yeah. Th- <laughs> that's so true. Mo- most of these novels are so massively, uh, how to say, what's the word there? Uh, prolific. Many writers are so prolific and, and write in such a maximalist way. I, I remember I was talking to to, to Darwin actually uh, some months ago, and and I I think one of an interesting way to look at it would be to consider it a sort of pre-modern postmodernism going on, in that the medium of the novel and the language were explored in such a prolific and bizarre and and atypical and unexpected way very self-referential, very self-aware that uh, for se- one could say, and I think I make this claim somewhere in the book, I maybe misremember now, but they were both two steps ahead and still one step behind or still one or two steps behind. And so that's why this sort of lack of, of, of uh, synchronicity uh, and uh, characterized this period as a very particular one, and also for a long time relegated it at, at a sort of in the background as a sort of minor, weird, kind of weird uncle kind of literature, you know. Um, for sure, yes. And um, there's, there's much to be said about these, almost as a, you know, cultural kind of dance, right? The, the two steps forward, one step back, uh, I like to think about it, right? Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, go ahead, um, sorry. No, no, that's that. It is a dance because you in this huge corpus of unexplored literature, you can find some. I I read, and just to be clear, I'm not claiming I am I am so sort of, some sort of expert on the whole, but because there was so much, so many things going on, so many texts and and genres and 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 writers and and philosophers turned writers that that it's it, I still have my my reading to do you know I was lucky enough to stumble upon this um, corpus of texts to put together this corpus of texts that made sense if read through the utopian lens and so that's what I ended up doing and I did it for a very simple reason I, initially I was I was really into. I was very interested in working on on Chinese science, on the origins of Chinese science fiction. And as I started work, 
first year of PhD we're talking about here, 2012. And as I started working on that, I realized that uh, somebody, as it happens often, that somebody else just happened to to to, to have just written a whole a full dissertation about it. So. I read that dissertation. I was like, yep, that was what I wanted to write. So I better find something else. <laughs> and of course, I'm talking about my colleague and friend, Nathaniel Isaacson. Uh, in, uh, I think he, he's in, at North Carolina State University. And he wrote, he published uh, a couple of years ago, uh, Celest- Celestial Empire Empires which is a, a, a history of Chinese science fiction that starts from the same uh, time frame that I use in my book. So I figured, so I cannot talk about science fiction, but it's pretty clear that this text, this text, this network or like cloud of texts were using science fiction, were using different generic perspectives to talk about some, to talk, to talk about the future, and most of the times these discourses about the future turn into like uh, ideal versions, ide- idealizations of the times to come, um, some imagination of post-colonial futures in which the condition of uh, early modern, late imperial China, which was one of subjugation, was being overturned, and and the young China, as Nancy Chao put it, would take back its place at the center of the world order. And so oftentimes these discourses would take once converted into translated into the into novels, they would turn into what we would understand now as utopian novels in the in the manner of Edward Bellamy's or uh, William Morris or you know uh, those authors I mentioned in I mentioned later on in the book. Yes, yes, and I have a question about oh, those. Sure. Yes. <laughs> later <laughs> yeah, on. Yeah, of course. Yes, uh, right. And um, I think to to because you just mentioned the the word fiction, right? And I think you do um, you ponder um, on the role of fiction and you know its its function according to Liang Qichao, and then uh, you analyze that in relation to Cai Yuanpei's short story New Year's Dream. So, um, you know, I was fascinated and I would love our listeners to, to know more about, um, you know, the way we can theorize the role fiction plays and how it evolves and mutates in the utopian novel. And specifically at this, this you know, watershed moment at the beginning of the 20th century um, that, you know, is so, so fruitful and so fascinating. So as for the... Um, so this may sound counterintuitive, Considering that in the book, I realize I tend to lose myself a lot into uh, pseudo-theoretical digressions. And this remains between us, but one of the main critiques I got from the, during the peer review process was me getting lost in, to, in, in like this theoretical. I wanted to be... I wanted to, to write theoretically. <laughs> I wanted to write so, in a sophisticated way about very simple things. And that was a mistake that was pointed out to me. Anyway, all I'm saying is that there's, we don't need to do much uh, theorizing about this, this, this kind of, of novels in that uh, the theorizing was going on itself back back then. Uh, there were... Uh, uh, Yan Xiao was not Lu Xun, um, Fan Tian Xiao. They were 
all these people, they were, before even starting to write novels, they were writing about what the novel should do or could do. So there was a much, a level of, uh, a high level of self-awareness about how to use this in- instrument that is a novel. And so, so um, I feel in retrospect, of course, now it appears clear to me, I, it, it, I, I feel like I didn't have to, 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 to theorize much about it because it, because most of, 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 most of the perspective I tried, I tried to unpack were already being unpacked back then. When you have the anti-child writing about how it is necessary to to use the, the to use fiction in order to educate the people, it was it was um, both um, harking back to a Confucian tradition of. Uh, a sort of moralistic view on literature that would put a lot of responsibility, that would justify the writing and the enjoying of fiction only if oriented to a like a, a, a higher goal. Uh, it, so it was both uh, looking back at, at the older times, but he was also writing in response to uh, he was writing from a new moral uh, a moral ground. He was somehow rejecting uh, the um, what Perling defined as. The, oh my God, I missed, I, I'm forgetting the uh, Mandarin ducks and and uh, oh Jesus. And um, but yes, thank you. Uh, yes, uh, Mandarin ducks and butterflies literature. So this sort of of of, uh, of very floaty, um, maybe sophisticated, but. Uh, not, let's say, engaged kind of writing. So it was Yanshine saying that the novel should, the first function of the novel, that the power of, of the novel lies in its, in, in its capacity to change the mind of people. Uh, it was, he um, knew what he was doing. And so, yeah, uh, I kind of lost my thread here, but... <laughs> um, so this is where my, my theorizing around, around this genre comes about. Uh, and my interest, my interest when I use the, the label utopia, I don't really refer to the imaginary uh, landscapes this open, like, described on the surface of, of these novels. Rather, I'm intrigued by how there's a certain discrepancy between what these authors claim they want to do so they claim they want to they want to give visions of the China of the future. They're gonna show the people how things are gonna be if we all strive for reform. So there's a sort of of, of uh, um, a first level of of declarations of authorial intentions in this case. But also there's the way the texts behave and how the the what is actually given in the text. Is not always what was claimed to be given by the author in the first place. So there's a certain discrepancy that there's something that doesn't compute, and or that is missing. There are blind spots, and so this is this is to me what is utopian in in, in, in as in it's not there. It's the non-place of the text, and this is a, a perspective that he adopted from a from a particular book. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna lie about my 
my sources, but I, I picked up this this angle from uh, from the book Utopique Jeu d'espace, which is um, an analysis by by French semiotician Louis Marin on Thomas More's Utopia, written in uh, if I remember correctly in nineteen around 1968, in which he talks about Thomas More's Utopia, Thomas More's Utopia, not really in terms of, of he, he tries to foreground how the utopian locus of the text, of, of, of More's text, is not really the island the, that More was trying to describe, but rather the, what was missing from the description of the island and what was not... Uh, to the discrepancies between the level of narration and the level of description of the text. So this is what I tried to do. Uh, this is the, the, the approach I had in mind when I, when I started putting together and analyzing the texts that, the text that, that, um, um, that are in the book that I, that I picked up on for, for my book. Sure, sure. It, it, it makes sense. And I think it, you can see it um, throughout the book. I mean, the introduction does a very good job at describing these, these lenses you are using and also your interpretation of the term utopia. So I think after the introduction, we're all set to go into, um, you know, <laughs> the, the matter of things. And speaking of that, uh, you know, the, the first chapter appears to be the one where you define uh, even more the terms and you draw the connections with extant scholarship on Chinese utopian novels. And, you know, you do mention um, um, uh, Isaacson and Ye and, you know, others and David Wong. And, um, you know, um, I think it would be useful for, for the listeners to, to hear a bit more about the background onto which your conceptualizations take root, like, you know, the, the larger conversations. Uh, and you did mention these uh, a little bit just now, but maybe just expand a little bit more. The late Qing has been explored a lot, a lot at least from the late 90s. And, and David Wang is not like my main point of reference in that. He kind of opened that door. And, and, and at least for me, I mean, I, I still consider myself a pretty young and naive researcher, so probably I'm missing out on so many things. But anyway, I, it seems to me that, that this whole discovery of the late Qing came, uh, uh, was a fairly recent affair. Uh, and the, the, Wang's book is from 1997. So let's say the last 20 years or so, anyway. So my point is, how do we get there? And so in the first chapter, what I tried to do was to look back at, at uh, histories of Chinese fiction, uh, discourses around, around Chinese fiction that, that were written maybe not in the very same years, that uh, maybe not in the very in that particular decade I focus on as a as a critic, but soon thereafter, right? And so I look I looked into Hu uh, who was writing like the um, I think the twenties about the Chinese literature of the last fifty years. I I read I read some Lu Xun, I read Aying, uh, and so and so I was trying to look into this early. Uh, scholars of Chinese fiction to see if they themselves picked up anything like what they want, uh, what they wanted to talk about. And what is interesting to me is that most of the of the novelists, some of the novelists I I, I, I engage with, are not even mentioned. Like if not 
very, very, very marginally. And those that are mentioned, such as uh, Wu Jianren, or also known as Wu Woyao, uh, who wrote the new story of the stone, um, he's, considered, he's considered like uh, most often than not a chief example of these old-timey writers that were struggling to become modern, right? And you have a sort of change in perspective with Ying. Uh, in the so 1930s, late 1930s, with the history of late fiction, in which some elements of, of truly, maybe not truly revolutionary writing, but rather innovative writing are uh, dug up. Um, so this is what I, I tried to do. I, so I tried to, to see whether this pe- the work of this novelist I was, I was reading was actually rec- recognized as such, you know? Uh, if Tsai for example, the uh, New Year's Dream by Tsai Pei was actually uh, re- like was in the radar of those who cared about literature, you know, and it, it I was struck upon this blind spot about about this this genre that I call in my in my book conveniently because you know you have to sell books so you have to find out cool perspectives to to talk about normal stuff. But what I call Butovansiarshaw. Back then was also known as Lisiansi or like the specu- speculative fiction, um, and this you could find uh, uh, the mentions of this genre in the horn titles of the of the of the of the serializations of this book. So the title, the the four small characters on top of the title, on the upper corner of the page, they would mention like Butovan or Lisian. But it was overall um, quite dismissed. Yanti Shao, in I don't now I, I cannot I don't remember the title where he wrote it, but he, he somewhere gives a list of genres that were uh, how to say older age back then, and so he gives this series of like of different kinds of writing, like the political novel, the military novel, the romantic novel, the uh, scientific adventure. But there's little mention of of utopian writing as such. It was almost like an a, a, like a um, an unspoken agreement that if you look at fiction as a tool for 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 cultivating a new form of cit- a new a new nation and its citizens, then of course it's going to be utopian. You know, of course you're going to talk about how things are going to be. So. This is to me the the interesting blind spot that prompted me to actually foreground this this label of utopian writing because because it's there. Uh, at least I tried to 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 argue for that. So. Right, and it's very informative um, for us today to use this lens, you know, and look back um, at the ways in which it was or it wasn't labeled as such, uh, right, and, you know, the reasons for which it wasn't, and, you know, what does it say about, you know, the spirit of the time, or, you know, the political views that people had at that time, not to think about this type of literature the way we do today, right? So, I think just by by using this lens, you are implicitly raising questions, uh, you know, that I'm very sure others will pick up (laughs) very soon. Um, So, um, yeah, I think it's it's really it's very interesting, and you know any uh, any blind spot the way you're describing uh, it might 
just open a door to to very yeah. you know very cool that i think that, in the that future, right sorry if i interrupt you but um maybe using this this um expression a lot like blind spots finding blind spots is what we do as academics right we try to find some uh angles the angles that are not explored and we try to write about it um so there's that I think, but it works on, in different layers, right? There's a there are the blind spots of of recent scholarship, at least before the 1990s, having 19, late 1980s, uh, 1990s, having somehow dismissed the late Qing as a sort of of, of transitionary period that was not as interesting and as the classics that came that were before and the the new the truly new literature that came. Uh, in, with the May 4th. So that's a blind spot. But the blind spot was also the blind spot going on back then. And this sort of like uh, implied uh, unspoken vision of literature as something that has, that has an encoded uh, a, a utopian goal. Sure, absolutely. Yes, yes, absolutely. And, um, you know, uh, not as a blind spot, but, you know, sharing some sort of uh, uh, similarities. I think um, with that in mind, we can uh, move forward to discussing a little bit uh, your second chapter uh, that where, you know, you, you talk about two unfinished novels, specifically uh, Liang Tichao's uh, Xin Zhongguo Wei Lai Ji and Chen Tianhua's uh, Shi Zihou, right? And um, these uh, these seem to be, uh, as you say, you know, useful starting points for the understanding of utopian thinking and writing as a practice of displacement of historical consciousness. Um, and um, I think um, you do have, you know, a very nice uh, kind of description at the beginning of the chapter in which you're you're saying that you're using this this idea of the unfinished novel to your advantage and to to develop your own thinking. Um, <laughs> yeah, so that's uh, kind of my cue to ask you to say more about these, the second chapter. Of course. Uh, well, you know, uh, I'm not going to lie about this. this the, the, these are not uh, easy novels to, to, to read. The, the, style, the, the kind of language that they're written with is, um, is something that is changing day by day, day after day. And so you're not. We're not there yet with a really a truly uh, modern Putonghua. We're of course we're of course uh, centuries away from from proper classical Chinese. So it's something. Uh, it's a weird animal, let's say. And so it took me a long time to go through these novels, to be honest. And uh, and I started to realize that many of the, when I was constructing my, my corpus, I realized that many novels were incomplete, unfinished. And it was so frustrating because, you know, you take the time to, you like delve into the text and you, you struggle because it's freaking incomprehensible at times. And you try to make sense of it. And then it just stops and you realize what, what's so, so now what? What should I do? Uh, do, I, do I just throw away whatever I read so far? Um, and the thing is that, uh, Unfinished novels, unfinished literary projects, unfinished philosophical projects, historiographical projects were something pretty common back then, um, or at least common enough that you would notice that, that if you really dig into the, the into what was being published, you have these many projects that were like very uh, what's the word very 
um, uh, ambitious at the beginning, and that they turn out into nothing. And like the Yanchichal's history of uh, the Sinjawa with IT, uh, it was supposed to be the first element of a trilogy that would comprise the future of New China, the future of old China, which was supposed to be a dystopian text. And then, and then uh, the new pitch blossom spring, the Xintao uh, Yuanji, which was, and so it was, you know, and, and Yanji Chao actually took the time to write an essay, a sort of uh, a commercials, that trailer-like uh, essay in which he was saying it was going to publish this, this new magazine and in, in this new magazine it was going to, to 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 publish to serialize these three novels, right? Of which the Sinjongwa Wei it was the first installment. And so you, you know, I think I, I assume that that readers back then were maybe hyped hyped to 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 see what was what was going to happen with this project. But he eventually ended he ended up writing five chapters, you know, and it just abandoned the project. And honestly, I don't know why. I I didn't find myself. I didn't find anything any any uh, document, letter, diary entry, or whatever that in which Yanti Chao himself talks about why he stopped writing, uh, he stopped working on that project. He was being exiled, so he was going, he was being traveling all over the place. So I assume that was not his main concern. Anyway, so there's one element which is the that unfinished work are pretty common. There's a, another major text that somehow counterintuitively I don't mention much in my book, which is the Utoban Yoti, the Travel to Utopia, um, which, you know, it's, it's the, the title is pretty obvious, so one would reasonably ask, ask me why didn't you include it in, in, in the book? Because that's mostly what I would consider science fiction, and, and Isaacson told, uh, wrote a lot, a lot about it already, so I thought it was... Anyway, it doesn't matter. This novel was, was unfinished as well, so there are many unfinished novels, which is fine in general, but if you look at the... If you adopt the utopian perspective, then it, it becomes pretty fascinating to me. In which it seems to me, so I don't know if you if you how familiar we are, you are with Thomas More's Utopia, the the original uh, genre founding book. But there's a uh, um, in one of the letters that work as paratext of More's Utopia, uh, the narrator is being asked. So is Rafael Day is being asked, so where is this island you talk about? Where, where, where did you go? Where did you find this ideal society that you keep telling about, telling us about? And, and then the, narrate, the, the, the story goes that as the narrator tries to answer the question and give you, and give you the actual coordinates of, of the location of Utopia, somebody starts coughing. And so the, the, the writer, of the, the, and so the narrator was the, the first person narrator who's providing the story claims that he didn't hear the explanation of where Utopia is, right? And this is often interpreted in a, uh, of course, in a, in a metaphorical way in that there's, there is, when it comes to, to, to Utopia, you have to posit a sort of uh, shift outside of history. So you, you're, not, you're not given the way you get to Utopia, you're just given the figure of Utopia, which is somewhere far away and it's somewhere that is not really reachable. 
Uh, and this is the potential of the idea. It posits like a radical, uh, a radical otherness that could uh, uh, undermine and unset your preconception, your let's say your your own ideological immemorial, so to say. And so it was fascinating to me that you have this text that claim that they want to represent the utopia of the of China of, of future China of post post colonial China. But when it actually comes to doing that, to giving you that image, these texts just vanish into nothingness. You know, they just stop somewhere in the middle, and then you're left there wondering. So, what's where? Where is the this this image of the future that we are, we were promised? You know, which I think it's pretty. It's a pretty fascinating way of looking at what the genre was trying. This kind of writing was trying to do in the first place. Uh, so I kind of. Pushed, I kind of pushed uh, uh, the logic of the argument to the actual physicality of the text, of the text being unfinished, of us not having chapters, basically. Right, right, right. And it's a it's a meta gesture, right, towards writing and creating the the hype and you know probably the the, the whole thinking process. Who knows? Um, but you know, you stop short of it in a gesture that somehow continues by itself, but we don't know. So that probably has a lot of potential to to, to still be unraveled, right? And you know, this, this kind of writing, it came about right after the 100 years. That's where my, the title of my book uh, comes from. The 100 Days Reform. So these people were writing ut- utopian novels because they just realized that when they tried to implement those measures, measures of reform uh, in the actual place where they were living, it didn't turn out well. They were either killed or ex- or exiled. So, in this perspective, the utopian fiction was already a sort of was a genre that was basically recognizing a failure. Because you know, if you could, if you know how to to get to a better place, you get there. You know, you don't you, you you're not stuck in the novel. You're not stuck fantasizing about it. Right, stuck or, you know, some sort of continuity, right, between, you know, the historical reality and the narrative about the history itself, you know. So there's some sort of um, porous borders, from what you're saying, that uh, appears to have uh, constructed, been constructed there, right? And, um, Right. So speaking of, of historical coordinates and, and contours, I think chapter three uh, presents, uh, presents us with a, a provisional detour from, from these, uh, these um, you know, matters at the, uh, during the late Qing uh, period and also late Qing fiction. And um, I think the chapter uh, comes out as looking at, quote unquote, China as the object of representation of the other. And um, I think this is the first chapter where uh, you um, you do comparative work or comparative analysis between uh, you know Edward Bellamy's uh, Looking Forward 2000 to uh, eight. Looking backward. Oh, sorry. Yes, Looking Backward. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> I was looking yes. at the the. He's forward and he's looking backward. Yes, right. <laughs> um, right. So that was published in United States in 1888, and then Arthur uh, Dudley Benton's yeah. uh, "Looking Further Backward," 1890. Right. Uh, exactly. And, and, yeah. 
These are on one hand, and then Kang Youwei and Liang Qichao on the other, right? So, uh, and then further in the chapter, you also juxtapose Liang Qichao to uh, Timothy Richard. Um, so, you know, just if you could expand more on the work of comparison and uh, the very productive nature that informs the chapter, um, you know, here. Yeah. Um, sure, of course. Uh, so here I have to give credit where credit is due. And that is to say uh, that uh, Catherine Ye wrote a lot about the uh, mig- he, she uses the expression migration of the genre from 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 Europe to, to the Philippines, to Japan, and then to China. And he talks about uh, the political novel, novel in the manner of of, uh, of uh, the Israelis conning me. Um, looking back, Bellum is looking backward as a similar trajectory in that um, it informs, it, it was translated, let's say assimilated at the beginning, summarized, abridged, uh, it circulated in different forms uh, at the turn of the century, and it was fascinating to me that uh, some it, it's it's almost like the text itself gets translated, mistranslated, cut to pieces, it, and and it fragments all over the literary landscape, and then elements of the text are picked up all over the place, and so they resurface in in the novels that that I myself worked on. And um, it's fascinating when you actually look at the text and how I tried, what I did, what I tried to do was, were two things, basically. The first one was, um, I tried to look into how the translation, the first summarized translation that was given by Timothy Richard in, in 18, oh my God, I remember, 1892, 93, if I'm not wrong. I have a really bad memory. Uh, I, I tried to, 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 to see how that particular transition was received. And so you have Kanye Wei writing about it, you have Hansetong mention it, mentioning it somewhere. And then I try, I follow the, the genealogy of, of Bellamy's trans, Chinese translation uh, till, till the 1910s when you have the, the actual, uh, actually a proper, let's say, um, a proper. Um, like well-informed, well-written, and 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 faithful translation of the text, but even before that, you 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 have elements of Bellamy's novel circulating and getting uh, into the DNA of of what was being write, written locally, you know. And so um, this is one thing. I also realized that. You know, you have conflict. You have specular mirroring representations of how the future should be. You know, if you, Bellamy's looking backward was highly criticized at the time. Uh, many critics thought it was like a socialist generation of of the United. What 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 he was represented representing was a socialist laden degeneration of the United States. So people wrote against it. One of the of of of, of the sequels that. Bellamy's novel Scott was this looking further backward by this Vinton guy who was, I think, is a very, very, very minor. I'm not, I, I'm, I'm not a super expert on American literature, but I, I'm pretty confident it's a very minor writer. 
um, at the margins of canon, and he wrote a critique of uh, of Bellamy's that made use of the yellow peril trope to 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 dismantle Bellamy's utopian ideal. So what he said, what this Vinton says is, if we really do like you suggest, if we really adopt the form of governance that you are that you that you are pushing for, so if we nationalize all industries and we uh, we we eliminate corporation and we, we we get rid of private property. If we do that, it's going to take no time for the Chinese to come here and invade us, right? So this is the yellow fairy menace uh, looming over. And then the rest of the novel is pre- of looking further backward. It's presented as a history lecture in which this Chinese professor goes to a college in Boston and tells a. a, a an auditorium of like American students, how they lost control of their country and now they ended up be, being invaded uh, by the Chinese. But this is not. But then it takes things a step forward, uh, further, and it says that, well, of course, this is the the speaking voice, uh, the speaking the 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 point of view is that of the Chinese professor as it was imagined by this American uh, author. But anyway. It, to the end of the, to the toward the end of the novel, what what started as a dystopian take on Edward Bellamy's uh, utopian vision turned back again into a sort of transcultural uh, utopia in which the differences between um, Chinese and Americans are somehow uh, mediated or neutralized. You know, so the description of the Chinese uh, of the um, I would say that Chinese states of America described at, at the end of this novel is actually pretty good. You know, it's not a, such a, a dark scenario as the beginning of the novel makes you think it's going to be. And so what, what's funny to me is that this kind of, of, of um, visions of the future in which China becomes this new world power um, somehow overlap. Or maybe, or or if they don't overlap, they are they, they pointed completely opposite directions. So what is for Binton a dystopia of Chinese colonization is for the Chinese the utopia of, of China as the new world power. So when they do not overlap, they they write in, they respond to each other as the negative and the positive of a, of a photography. And so and this is not only my own reading of the. Of this text, my own this, my own desire to put them together, but rather, if you actually look at the circulation of some of these texts, at least, uh, you find the traces that that bring one text being read and translated and assimilated and rewritten from one side of the world to the other. Yeah, and um, you know, in the introduction, you present chapters four and five as a unit. Uh, that expand uh, expands the concept of utopian spectacle, right? So we have a, um, a new term here, uh, right? And uh, the main parts are Wu uh, Jianren's Xin uh, Shi Ji and Lu Shu'er's Xin uh, Zhongguo, right? So um, you know, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so then um, you know, um, I was wondering about the connections and the line of thought. Uh, between spectacle and utopias, uh, you know, both theoretically and narratively, um, for for these chapters. The spectacle, well, 
I was trying to be fancy and quote French philosophers, you know, as we all do. But I guess the basic idea would be that there's a, uh, as I mentioned at the beginning of this interview, there's a, there, there's a level of narration and a level of description and, and a level of, of intention, let's say, this, that, that overlap or do not overlap in the writing of these texts. There are claims made by authors that say they want to uh, present a particular vision of the future. There's the matter of the text uh, of what is being given. And then there is what is missing from the text. When, what, what readers, informed readers, like we could be right now, would expect to find, but actually do not find uh, find when it gets the, to the to the matter to the matter of the of the, of, of, of the novels, right? So when I my reference to the notion of spectacle was both. Figurative and literal. Figurative in that it seems to me there's what is being presented in these texts is a sort of, of Potemkin village, right? A sort of, of facade, a facade of utopian prowess, a facade of post-colonial, uh, of these post-colonial scenarios in which the, the world order is, re- the late 19th, early 20th century world order is reversed. And so, China, China in this particular case moves from a position of of of, uh, of uh, semi-colonial or hypo-colonial. If you listen to to Sun Yat-sen, uh, from a, hype, a position of hypo-colonial subjugation to one of, of of hegemonic centrality. So there is sort of this narration of reversal um, that is given as a figure, you know, as this description of ideal cities of this beautiful city of Shanghai being super technological and clean and and and, and the new hub of, of, of the, the new capital of the world. Uh, there are also, um, this, is, I, this is a very well-presented facade. The moment, the point is that the, once you start to, to, to try to look behind the curtains, behind the, this scenography, uh, you realize that there are certain uh, important elements of the narration that are not given, uh, that that are missing, and then and that uh, like transit. For example, the how do we get there? You know how the or like discourse about discourse about uh, the economic foundations of such a state, or the way we we may uh, concretely move toward uh, this. Utopian, utopian landscape, this utopian uh, arrangements, and to me, when the text tried to go there, the 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 whole narrative structure break down. If you think about the the new story of the stone, which is pretty niftily conceived as a twenty plus twenty chapter novel, in which the first twenty chapters are like a a, a, satir, a satirical take on on late imperial China pretty much in line with many other novels written at the time. And the second half is its utopian con- counterpart. When it comes, though, to move from uh, one the, from the first half to the second half, the narration breaks down. And this is particularly clear, in the, again, in the mystery of the stone, in that 
the the plot somehow refuses to make sense. Characters are lost. Characters are, are like uh, left apart. Uh, there's a, a sort of like unreliability in the way the story is told that uh, somehow makes it difficult to uh, to properly articulate the passage. You know, to, to properly articulate how we get to the utopian part of the text, which is similar to the to the you know the 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 Thomas More episode in which when you're asked when when somebody asks for where Utopia is, some somehow the message doesn't get through for 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 reasons, you know. Um so there's that. So that's the spectacle to me. It's a spectacle to the extent in which uh it's very much consciously put forward as an arrangement of symbols. But when you want but like when you're at the theater, if you know if you move behind the, the stage you realize how everything is made up in a, in a way that for the public, it makes sense, you know, but only if you stay in the position of the public, you know, uh, in the, in the carefully arranged position of the reader who is given this image of this utopian image, which is what the, the text was doing in the first place. If you write to educate, to teach, to give, uh, to push for a particularly, uh, from, from, to push for a particular ideological perspective, then of course you're putting the reader uh, in a certain uh, in a certain position, so that he or she looks at certain things and not others, right? Or gives priority to what to 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 whatever aspect you want to be given priority as as the provider of this message of this novel of this piece of text. So. Yeah, very, very interesting. And, you know, the process and the mechanics uh, through which uh, this, you know, the attention towards certain um, ideas or, you know, certain passages gets gets focused in the text. I think it's, it's um, you know, worth exploring further. And, um, you know, I think there are so many conclusions and so many paths you can draw and take that, um, you know, it's, it's it, I, I assume that writing the conclusion part must have been quite quite hard. So, you know, I was thinking about what would be the main points that you want the readers to take away. Um, or, you know, maybe kind of an enticing type of being like, read my book <laughs> instead of knowing about the conclusions. Um, but, yeah. Oh, geez. This, this is hard. Um... I wouldn't know. So this is a really, this is maybe what kind of point to be. It's like don't you don't you think that writing these books is like when the climbers are asked why would you climb Mount Everest and they answer because it's there. You know, I wasn't really thinking about making a larger point to what I was doing. I was just I thought I found these texts and they were there and I thought hmm, nobody's writing about them so I'm going to. Um, I'm just going to give you something interesting to think to give these the listeners uh, something interesting to think about. So when I was in, in I wasn't last time I was in Beijing was in 2015. And right before the Shanghai Expo. Anyway, the, 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 the expo was a big thing back then and it just um, and so that was the main talk around town and I remember that I was just, I just started to explore this late Qing writing and I I found this novel, the, uh, a new edition of the Xinjiang the New China by Liu Xia, one of the few texts I, I focus on in the first and fourth and fifth chapter. 
it was republished in this really fancy shiny red bright red cover uh, hardcover edition and in the cover it had the the main pavilion the, the main building of the expo uh, and then this note that said uh, what we I'm, I'm translating from memory so I may be wrong but something in the lines of what we were dreaming 100 years ago um, we are realizing it today and in fact this the Xinjiangwo by Lu Shu was written in 1910 it was uh, it was basically a rewriting of Bellamy's Looking Backward in which this character falls asleep and wakes up in the 1950s and he realizes that that Shanghai in uh, Shanghai in the 1950s has become the center of the world and all nations of the world are, are convening in Shanghai to celebrate this new uh, era of typing of, of, of peace of like universal peace and so what is being given in the text in 19 in written 1910 is something I would say comparable to to what the expo was trying to do in 2010 so to say it gives this sort of, of, of uh, a new narration you know new sort of, of, of end of history or beginning of a new history kind of of, of and narration, and so it doesn't. It's funny to me that somebody back then in 2010 decided, actually remembered that 100 years before there was this really minor text that was exploring these po- future possibilities, and and decided to use this text, you know, to reframe and repackage this text in the, in the around the time that the expo was, was taking place, you know. And it's funny to me, because to be honest, it's bad to say, but, you know, we're not talking about Tolstoy or Dostoevsky, you know. It's not major. We're not talking about major uh, contribution to, to world literature. These are very, unfortunately, it's a genre that gets formulaic and repetitive very quickly, you know. So um, uh, the thing is, regardless of the actual quality of, of how engaging the, the novel is, um, somebody decided to publish it in 2010 and using it as a sort of proof that, that there was a grand scheme of things that was turning out right exactly as it should, it should have been, you know? So I don't know. Uh, I guess this is my... Um, uh, this is my final take on the whole thing. <laughs> <I don't... laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, before the final take, you know, I wanted to 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 invite you, or you know, even just to ask um, whether uh, there is something else we didn't go over today, but you would really like your listeners to know. Um, you know, either about the period you're talking about, the book. Um, I don't know specific well, events. Just. Um... I'm gonna pat myself on the back briefly. Um, if any, if anything, there's a I, I translated a lot in the probably you noticed as well. There there are many long bits of translation that you know these texts are not really easy to engage, and and so I suppose that's something I'm really proud of. In that I one I had an original side project that, that never. Uh, 
never became concrete. So what I wanted to do was initially wanted to translate this text, but then I realized it was too much and they were not always so engaging. So I figured, why don't uh, a cool thing to do would be to to go back to corpus of text and maybe compose a hyper novel with the most interesting sections of those texts, the, the texts they explore in the book. Um, I think it would make for a pretty cool and engaging project to do in translation, and that I never did. But still, there are fragments of it in the in the in the book, and maybe the most consistent part, consistent translation that that you can find is the. the the New Year's Dream by Tsai Pei, which is such a bizarre a short story because Tsai Pei was not was not a novelist; he was a, an educator, a philosopher, an anarchist, an Esperanto supporter. And the only piece of fiction that he wrote was, as a youngster, was this this uh, piece of utopian fiction, you know. And it's really peculiar to me that such an important figure. The founder of Academia Sinica, the, the the president of, of Beta, um, when he decided to 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 try his hand at fiction, he went for the for the um, for this kind of writing. Right, it's just uh, fascinating to me, and that's why. And it offers a really good starting point to get familiar quickly with the genre because it's a short story. It contains all the the tropes, the themes, the the tones of the particularities of the genre so yeah yeah that's that yeah i mean the the short story is really really interesting and you know even if you're not you know as uh, a scholar or you know just a person interested in in utopian fiction even if you're not particularly um you know um interested in translations but um it it makes a lot of sense and it's definitely well positioned in the inside the analysis of the book so Definitely, I will. I'll check it out again. <laughs> um, to be honest, you're the first person I'm talking to who actually went through the whole book. Of course, uh, I'm. You know, I'm not considering the peer reviewers of my my supervisors or my mom. Uh, but you're the first external re- reader that actually with him, with, with whom I'm actually. Oh engaging. no no no! I was a bit scared. Scared, <laughs> you know. Absolutely, yeah, and I, I'm honored to okay. be the first you talk to <laughs> about this. And uh, definitely, I would <laughs> like to to expand more on the book. And you know, I have a lot of other questions, but um, I know that uh, right now we already taken a lot of your time. So um, I just wanted to ask you, what are your other uh, projects? Your you know summer projects? What are you working on right now that excites you? Um. That's a tough question. I've been struggling a little bit recently to find uh, some really cool long-term project to engage with. The thing is, I keep getting uh, drawn back to the late Qing period. I think there's so much to say about it. Um, I'm thinking about working around travelogues and travel writing uh, in, a, in a two-fold perspective. I'm writing a, a project for a, a, about fictional and factual travelogues in early modern China, in which I'm trying to, to put together different... Um, let's say that as China was becoming part of the world at large in the late, late empire, a lot of people was writing, were, were writing about 
a lot of, of, of writers were like traveling and writing about the travels. Or maybe they were they were writing about imaginary places uh, and, and setting these travelogues in a fictional context. What I'm saying is that there's a strange shifting between fictional and factual narrations in travelogues that were, to me, they look a lot like attempts to kind of, kind of mapping the new world that was expanding around as the, the, the borders of, of the empire was falling apart. And so I think there's something to say about it. So this is what I would like to do. So, yeah, the, I hope that I can make something out of it. We'll see. <laughs> well, I'm definitely looking forward. And it sounds so interesting that I think a lot of the listeners would also look forward for the next book or, you know, the next article or, you know, anything that, that would, uh, would come out of it. And um, for now, I would like to thank you very much for um, agreeing to speak to us about your book. And I wish you good luck. Thank you.